Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. Today, we're going to be talking about flex, the art and science of leadership in a changing world. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, the CEO and founder of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I believe that leaders create a strategic advantage and leadership is a key lever for changing the world and creating a world that we want to inhabit long term. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. With me on the show today is Jeffrey Hull. He is the author of Flex, the Art and Science of Leadership in a Changing World and the CEO of Leadership Inc. So Jeffrey, please tell our listeners about yourself. Basically, I divide myself up into three components, if you would, uh, might say. Executive coaching, leadership coaching is my primary focus in a whole range of industries, usually at uh, the C-suite level. I've been doing that for about 25 years. I'm also on the faculty at Harvard Medical School and at NYU, teaching leadership, C-suite leadership, capstone courses, that kind of thing. And I work part-time at the Institute of Coaching, which is affiliated with Harvard, doing research, developing education programs, and recently became the Director of Global Development, looking to build out the community beyond the borders of the U.S., your life sounds incredibly exciting. So, <laughs> Never a dull moment. <laughs> so in the past, to move up the corporate ladder and succeed at the top, you simply had to set goals, motivate your team, delegate, and groom a successor. Now, if you're leading a team, chances are you're managing a kaleidoscope of people from a variety of cultures across a range of ages, all of whom are wired together 24-7. These changing demographics and structures have led to a seismic shift in terms of tools needed to successfully manage and grow within a company. Charisma and strategic thinking abilities now matter less than qualities such as vulnerability and reliability. So Jeff joins me today to discuss the research he's done on the art and science of leadership in a changing world that is featured in his book, Flex, and he'll also talk about research he's done since publishing the book. So, Jeff, is there anything you want to tell us more about yourself and the book before we jump in? I mean, I think the only thing that I would add is that everything that I was working on, researching and writing about in 2019, 2020 is even more relevant today. You know, the book came out literally just as we were about to be hit with the pandemic. And you might say that everything would have stopped, but exactly the opposite happened. All the issues, changes, and the need for a more flexible leadership style to be successful actually has been accelerated in the last year. So I have seen exactly the same thing, that leaders who were effective managing transformation that was planned many of them are not so effective at managing transformation that's unplanned. Yeah, well, I think what it comes down to, and it's the primary theme of my research in my book, is flexibility or agility. And even before we had all these disruptions, organizations were becoming flatter, more networked. All the things that you mentioned, demographics were fundamentally changing. The world was becoming much more multicultural. The need to be agile in your leadership style was accelerating, but 
Then we all went into lockdowns and we went to into virtual space. And now we're probably moving into hybrid organizational dynamics. So in the past, when I would work with senior executives to talk about their need to become more flexible, their need to become more agile in their approach to leading teams, I would perhaps pick out one or two particular focus areas, like you said, like charisma or communications or team decision-making, all of which is still relevant. But today, those kinds of movements, those kinds of ability to be agile have reached the point where you have to do it in literally on the fly, in the virtual space, sometimes where you have employees and teams that have never even met each other in real life. So all of this is as relevant as ever, but it's actually incredibly crucial to have that level of agility in today's world. Thank you for sharing that. And I'd love to dive into your latest research and unpack a little bit more about how the leadership environment is changing and how the pandemic has impacted leaders. I mean, I think the way I would summarize it is that before recent disruptions, productivity and performance and results were still the primary drivers for most leaders. And they would still fall back on numbers, on data, on task-oriented focus with their teams. But in the past 18 months, we've all come to recognize that something much more profound than just results is actually key to success. And that's what I would call really the humanity or the human side of leading. The need to address, you know, what are the indicators of your team in terms of how they're holding together under extreme anxiety or under personal difficulties of losing loved ones or feeling really isolated and not being able to have a sense of team because they are either virtual or they're just geographically dispersed or they're in places where they really don't have the technological capability to be connected. So there's so many different variables. And the recent research that we're doing at the Institute of Coaching, which will in fact be published just in the next few weeks, where we interviewed a large number of executives around how they have shifted gears during this pandemic period. And the primary takeaway is they've had to become more human. They've had to become more personal. They've had to sometimes put results and data and numbers on the back seat and put in front their caring, their emotional connection to their people, their listening, They're creating an environment where people are not feeling disengaged or isolated or alienated or anxious, but are actually feeling like they're part of something. So it's more community-oriented. And this is really new for a lot of leaders who used to be, get me the numbers, get me the facts, get me the data, all of which is still relevant, but it's perhaps taken a backseat to what I would call more compassionate and a more vulnerable, more human leadership style that's required in today's world. So you're doing this research through a coaching institute. Right. So my assumption is the coaching field sees this as a crucial shift. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even before the pandemic, part of the reason that I wrote the book Flex was because I was really 
becoming aware that coaching had become an integrated component of success for most leaders. And there are particular reasons for that, that, you know, in in a situation where you have a one-on-one relationship with a coach, you can go so much deeper into some of these more sensitive areas, such as diversity and inclusion and emotional intelligence and vulnerability and humility and all of the kinds of things that I was just talking about, you know, the human side of leadership. Through mechanisms like feedback and assessments, working with a coach can be customized to the particular individual situation. So even before the pandemic, coaching was really taking off as one of the best modalities for developing your leadership chops, I would say, your leadership capabilities and competencies in what is a fast, accelerating, changing world. And so now, here we are, you know, 18, 24 months later, and as we at the Institute of Coaching interview executives, they come back to us saying that, you know, having a coach has become even more important to them. It's really one of the few places where they can let their hair down, where they can actually ask some of the really difficult personal questions about how to manage a team, for example, in a virtual space. How do I create psychological safety? What do I do when no one will turn on their video? (laughs) You know, it's sometimes simple and sometimes complex, but Coaching is one of those rare opportunities for someone to get truly customized and safe, confidential feedback to work on some of the more thorny challenges that leaders are facing in today's world. Thank you for sharing that because in my experience, and I assume a lot of people are asking this question, for those leaders who were brilliant at delivering results, and in some cases results at any cost, making this shift is a significant shift in mindset, it's not a light switch that goes on. And so how they make that journey is is a complex one. Absolutely. Yeah. And it starts with self-awareness, right? It starts with having a grounding in your strengths as a leader, what you do particularly well, what your fallback position might be per se. Maybe you are highly charismatic. Maybe you are really good with numbers. And those strengths are important. And you know, it's not an either or proposition. And that was one of the key themes in my book, in fact, that when I studied the different dimensions of effective leadership, I focused on a spectrum. So we have what we would traditionally call the alpha or the assertive authoritative approach to these kinds of leadership activities. And then at the other end of a spectrum, you have what's becoming known and the lingo that I used was a more beta approach to leadership that's more collaborative, it's more consensus building, it's more coaching oriented. And the bottom line is it's not an either or proposition. It's not about becoming one way or the other. It's about developing the agility to sense what you're naturally good at and then to look to build what I call your agility muscles so that you have that ability to flex when the situation calls for it. So if you tend to be a collaborative, consensus-driven leader, there are those situations where you really might need to be decisive. You really need to find your inner alpha, as you might say, and to prove to your team that you can lead under you know, difficult situation, that you can make the tough call. But likewise, at the other end of the spectrum, if you're well known for being charismatic and decisive and authoritative, 
well, all that's great until everybody doesn't turn on their video because they're all too scared to speak up. They don't feel safe. They don't feel like you're really listening. You're just like running up the mountain and you turn around and there's no one there. So there's a need in, in those situations for you to develop some of the softer skills, the connection to the emotions of the team that you're working with, to bring out the best in the introverts, to find ways to engage and motivate creative types who may not have that same kind of charisma or that extroverted personality. Or they may be multicultural. They may be coming from different cultures, for example, that don't always respect the one who's the loudest in the room. And so as we have today, multicultural teams, more women in leadership roles, we have more technically savvy people stepping up, there needs to be much more variety. And that's really what I was trying to focus on in my research and also in the book. So it sounds like we all know the play to your strengths piece. It sounds like I need to expand my strengths, that I have to build the capacity to do things that either weren't innately wired in me or aren't comfortable. Yeah, I love the way you spoke that too. It's, it's getting over this idea that anything is innately wired. I have my quibbles with like personality tests that tell you that you are in this box in the quadrant and that's your style and that's it forever. I'm much more <laughs> in favor of what I would call developmental assessments where you get a snapshot in time around your strengths or around your derailers, which are often blind spots or areas within a spectrum of emotional intelligence that may not be that comfortable for you. But that doesn't mean you can't develop them through practices, through taking some risks, through trying out new ways to operate. And maybe even most importantly, by actually looking at role models and developing the leaders on your team or in your organization that are not like you. I mean, this is one of the things I think that's fundamentally changing in organizations, which is it used to be very much a pyramid, right? Your goal was to get to the top of the pyramid and look down. <laughs> but I think in today's world, it's much more about networked and much more about interconnectivity. And therefore, there's a shift from an I or an individually focused way of leading to what I would call a we or an organizationally or team focused way of leading so that you can actually get the best out of everyone. It sounds like both I need to increase my range or my capacity, the developmental piece, and I need to be wired with a team who can augment me but I don't get to abdicate things that, that just aren't so comfortable for me now. And one of the ones that comes to mind is this idea of integrity and appropriate behavior. I can't delegate constructive behavior to my ethics officer and I go off and do whatever I want and someone cleans it up. That There are things we all do. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you cannot delegate your own behavior. <laughs> the only thing you can do is own take accountability and reflect, going back to my point about self-awareness, on your own behavior and develop an expanded repertoire. I love that. You and I are completely aligned on the idea that self-awareness is the first. Right. And that for many of us, the repertoire that worked even two years ago needs to be updated. 
because it will be lacking in one way or another for most of us as the world has changed dramatically. An, an analogy would be that in the past, the leader needed to demonstrate a capacity to play one musical instrument. Let's say be really good at the piano, like be a world-class pianist or a world-class violinist. And that could take you a long way as a leader. If you were really charismatic or you did particularly really good strategic thinking or you were a visionary or in any of those single singular type categories, today's leaders really need to think of themselves as an orchestra conductor. And the best orchestra conductors know how to play pretty much every instrument in the orchestra. They may not be virtuoso, but they make an effort to understand all the instruments, to know the nuances of all the different instruments, and to know how to get them to all play together. And most of the best conductors actually do play a lot of the instruments. But I use that as an analogy because I think the days of being able to be a virtuoso individual musician as, as a leader are no longer going to work in today's world. As you're coaching people, because I imagine there were people listening who are either saying... I don't want to believe that because that's not me and I'm in a leadership role and I go, right. this is, this is not good news. <laughs> and there are others listening who are saying, Oh, that is me. And I didn't see that I had a path forward, but mm. now I do. And there are a lot of case studies in my book that cover those two ends of a spectrum, but I can think off the top of my head, for example, currently working with a scientist who has been asked to step up into a leadership role. And he's very uncomfortable. He would like to have the role, comes with more money, comes with a fancy title, comes with a bigger office, but he's really a scientist. He's really looking down the microscope, doing research, and also super successful at it. So he's virtuoso, right? But when asked to step up to a leadership role, I gave him the analogy of instead of looking down the microscope, you now need to look up the periscope which is you now need to see your role as a leader in a much broader context than you were when you were just doing the science. And that's a challenge. It's making him very uncomfortable. It's much more relationship-oriented than being a scientist. But he's up for the challenge. He just That's where coaching can help, you know, to shift the mindset to say, okay, you're successful at science. Now you can be successful at relationships, which is what's key in leadership. The other end of the spectrum, I have a you pointed to what I would call the reluctant leader. You know, someone who has historically not thought of themselves as a leader because they may not be super extroverted or charismatic or not the first one to speak up on the Zoom call, right? And yet, when I'm coaching an individual like that, I ask them, so do you want to have impact? Do you want to have influence? Do you consider yourself part of the innovation, the creativity, of the future of the organization. And usually I hear yes, yes, and yes. So that's when the coaching gets into, well, it's not necessary for, for you to become the superstar communicator, but you do need to develop your agility. You do need to develop those instruments to be able to speak up, to have a point of view, to have a relationship with other individuals. So that's maybe a little bit reluctant, but you, you can see already the two ends of the spectrum, mm -hmm. right? The introvert becomes the leader and the scientist becomes the leader. It's all possible. I use the analogy a lot of leaders having to take on the mind of a scientist because of the changes in our context. 
as a leader, I'm going to be making big decisions with limited information and much more rapidly. So the ability to formulate a really good hypothesis and test it before I get full information is now, in my view, foundational. And the willingness to say, okay, we were close, but we need to fix this is also foundational because the speed of change means I'm not going to get it right. I'll get it close. I'm not going to completely blow up my company, but there are things that just won't be as spot on as they would have been had I had more time. And what I love about what you're saying is that it's analogous to the design methodologies called Agile that a lot of companies are using these days. And what's great about that is that if you look at design thinking, which is where the Agile methodology was born, I think at Stanford originally, you know, the core of the iterative process starts with listening and empathy and goes through a continuous cycle of listening, exploring, excavating, and expanding, and then taking risks, taking steps, creating prototypes, trying things out, but recognizing that it's never complete. It's never, you're never at that finished point. And I think that that's a beautiful analogy for the way leaders need to operate today. That agile thinking and that agile approach, which starts with listening, starts with empathy, but moves quickly, iteratively. Because a lot of my clients, and I bet you've run into this, will say to me, you know, this all sounds great, Jeff, but it takes a lot of time. Like, I don't have time for all this empathy and all this listening and all. And I always say to them, that's a story you're telling yourself. Because if you look at software companies that use agile or their design thinking approaches, they do a lot of iterative thinking that involves empathy, that involves listening, that involves getting feedback, and they do it really quickly. It's called rapid prototyping. So it doesn't have to take a lot of time, but it does have to be intentional. You can't do it by accident. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't happen. <laughs> well, and I wonder how many people are more specifically responding to, I'm uncomfortable with empathy. People are going to share stuff I don't want to hear. So let me not do that stuff. Also, demonstrating empathy requires the willingness to take on a listening style where you're taking in someone else's story because you're really trying to listen at a deeper level. You know, what's sort of what's behind the words? What are the feelings? What are the nuances? That can be uncomfortable for a lot of people because it's not necessarily cut and dry. You're getting into some gray areas where you need to make some interpretations, whereas raw data is pretty self-explanatory. It's either A, B, or C, or you know, you're 90% or 95%. So storytelling is actually a crucial skill, but it's challenged. Storytelling and story listening it's becoming a really important skill for leaders. And it can be uncomfortable because it's not necessarily natural to everyone. So I assume then this is part of what you teach in your coaching experiences is how do I listen more deeply and more intently, not just for the steps in the story, but even the choice of which story to tell tells me about the person with whom I'm interacting. It's a really good point. And and often what I will do with my clients is a couple things. One is make some distinctions for them, which have gotten kind of lost along the way between what we would call advising, mentoring, 
coaching, delegating, those kinds of things all get lumped together. And they're actually quite different activities. And it can be really helpful for a leader to explore the difference between, for example, empowering, which is literally sharing power with others and delegating, which is actually handing someone something to do where you're still in charge. It's fundamentally different. So getting into some of those distinctions can be really helpful for leaders that are trying to be more nuanced and trying to be more flexible with their leadership style. I love that distinction. I assume in your book, Flex, you talk about that and other key distinctions. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the distinction in this section on collaboration between coaching and mentoring, for example, is a really important distinction. And this gets to your listening point, your story that we mentioned before. Mentoring, a lot of people think that mentoring and coaching are sort of the same thing, but they're really not. Mentoring still has a power over dynamic. If you're the mentor, you're the expert. So your goal is to transmit your expertise to your mentee. And it's very helpful. It's really great stuff. Absolutely, everyone should have a mentor, but it's very different from coaching. Coaching is a partnership where you take off the power hat and you actually are on par or on peer with your coachee and you're in an exploratory questioning space. So it's quite different. And understanding those distinctions can really help create a more collaborative environment. So you're right. I did spend quite a bit of time in studies on these kinds of distinctions. Same thing with the difference between creativity and productivity, which we talked about earlier. Because a lot of leaders struggle. They want their people to be highly productive. But then at the same time, they're like, yeah, but then you also need to be creative. We need to innovate. We need new ideas. Well, you know, they're very different energies. Being highly productive is about results, it's about tasks, it's about, it's about structure and discipline. Whereas being highly creative is almost exactly the opposite. It's highly fluid, it's unpredictable, it happens in the middle of the night or when you're in a shower. So, you know, those leaders that want to have both need to understand those distinctions and then be able to create an environment that nurtures those different distinctions. The thought that comes to mind as you say that is, yeah, you can be productive at work and then go shower and be creative at home. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But I'm I'm thinking that's not exactly what you're referring to. In a sense, it's what happens. That's why these kinds of research is helpful. Because, for example, I'll give you a real tangible example. I had a statistician I was working with, a leader in, in the statistics area for a pharmaceutical company. He wanted to be very creative. And so he's most creative in the middle of the night. And so he would tend to come into work very late in the morning. And his boss was very frustrated with him. It's like, why don't you show up to work like everybody else? And he's like, well, you wanted me to be really creative with some of these new algorithms that we're creating. I happen to do that. So do I wake up in the middle of the night and I have a great idea and I jump up in front of my computer and then I'm late for work. So, you know, the boss who was my client, it was a real wake up call when I said to him, well, which would you rather have? your fabulous creative statistician showing up every day at 9 a.m. or your fabulous creative statistician coming up with amazing new algorithms and new ways to approach these statistical challenges. And he's like, oh, okay, I get it. Maybe I need to let him come into work whenever he wants to. (laughs) So that's exactly the point. 
And that then requires our leaders not to have the either or, right. but the both exactly. and. Exactly. Because there are probably some people that need to be there at nine o'clock and they follow a process and they interact with other people following processes. And that is efficient and effective, but not creative. Absolutely. But that's important. That's why it's helpful when you're a leader to be able to make those distinctions within yourself, within your team, within the workplace dynamic that you're creating. And then you can get both. You can get high productivity and you can get creativity. But you can't just demand one or the other and expect it to happen. That's a perfect lead into the next question. What are the major changes you're seeing in the design and overall execution of high-performing teams? What are you seeing that is new and why does that matter? The thing that's really shifting, and it was already happening when my book came out a year and a half ago, but it's now super accelerated, is... The the shift from a hierarchical approach to leading to a more networked or I would say collaborative approach, which is incorporating the leadership of everyone into your teamwork. So most leaders still want to take charge in terms of creating a vision, having a mission, having a set of goals. But the acceleration toward being more inclusive in terms of getting everyone on board with how they're going to accomplish that. And that requires a much more flexible style. It can't really be dictated, into, especially in today's virtual space. You have to create an environment where you understand the strengths of your people. You're really focused on listening and engaging and empowering the leadership of others, not just the person who has the fancy office or the fancy title. And that kind of alignment is what creates a really high-performing team in today's environment. That sounds like a shift in mindset and behavior from the leader. Also, org structure and culture? Yeah, but it also requires more of the team, too. It actually requires the team to step up and participate. So it's a two-way street. I think it's important for leaders to not feel that they have the burden that it's all on their shoulders to make everyone engage. I think that with millennials now and with the next generation of leaders, they need to also step up and participate and take accountability and ownership of their participation. So as you say that you've used the metaphor of an orchestra conductor, and at this point, I'm thinking also of people dancing and specifically <laughs> the traditional ballroom dancing. If I step back, hopefully you step forward. Otherwise, the partnership is a bit disconnected. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's valuable and valid for leaders to actually engage in dialogue with their team around shared leadership. What does that mean? What part of the project are we actually going to give ownership and empowerment to everyone on the team? You know, who's going to be responsible for what? Let's hand, it's like um, what came to my mind when you were talking about dancing was the Hava Nagila. You know, everyone's sort of standing in a circle and they're dancing together. And there is perhaps no obvious leader, but everyone is doing their part in order to make it feel cohesive. And I think it's important in today's world in particular that leaders have that conversation with their team. 
you know, there's what's called a teal style leader, which is almost moving toward leaderless teams. But I would argue that it's when you try, in fact, I'm here at the Institute of Coaching, we've talked about this in my team. And when we tried to be leaderless, everything fell apart because people were then saying, oh, well, I'm not in charge. Oh, well, I'm not in charge. Oh, well, but it's exactly the other way around. It's leader full that you want to move towards and having accountability. So you look at what each person is responsible for in terms of the throughput of maybe the external world, which is the marketing, the consumer side, the engagement with the outside world, all the way through to the inner workings, the more data-driven, technological, back, you know, what, what would have been called the back office. But everybody has a part to play and everyone needs to be thinking of themselves as part of the leadership circle, so to speak. I do a lot personally with the developmental psychology that informs the idea of TO leadership. So it's a really comfortable construct. And right. yet, as I see people moving into that, it seems really important for everyone, almost as a liberating structure, that we each need to understand how we show up differently. Otherwise, people who are uncomfortable in making mistakes will feel less empowered. So more of a freezing rather than I'm clear on my accountabilities and the expectations. And then over time, I step into this shared leadership or co-leadership. But that's so unnatural compared to what many of our organizations have done in the past. Right. You're absolutely right. And in fact, that's why these kinds of podcasts and the books that I'm writing and that you're putting out are really crucial. We are all in a very large transitional space right now, even globally. And it's not always going to be comfortable for individuals at the top that have been used to owning and being held accountable, but also being the power and made the decisions any more than it will for those next generations that want to step up, but are kind of like shocked when they realize that that comes with accountability. It comes with a need to be responsive, to be responsible, to be engaged. You can't disappear anymore. You can't hide out. So yeah, there's a very big transition happening when we move toward what I would call shared leadership space, or in my book, I call it a post-heroic, where there's no longer just one single, typically guy riding on, in on the white horse to save everyone. We're all in this together. So now we all have to step up together. It can be very uncomfortable from both ends of the spectrum, but it is the direction that we're all moving. So the faster we get there, the more likely we're going to be successful. So you've talked about assessments and tools. I'm curious what you're seeing that you would put in your top five that really help people move from heroic to post-heroic other than stop watching Marvel movies. Actually, they can be great metaphors. In fact, I wrote a blog about one of them, about the transformation of Hulk. I'm forgetting the name of the professor that he transforms into at oh, the yeah. end. Of, remember? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. He actually went from being super alpha to being super beta, and then they blended the two together. And it, it's interesting, and that was at Endgame, Avengers Endgame. And it's interesting to see how Hollywood does exactly have become a metaphor for what's actually happening in the real world in many cases. So to your point, though, about tools, 
I mean, I think there are a lot of really good emotional intelligence assessments that have been validated. I am a big fan, and I wrote about the EQI 2.0, which was goes all the way back to a researcher named Peter Salovey. But Dan Goleman, who was one of the ones that publicized and made emotional intelligence sort of known to people as a journalist, he's developed a tool, emotional intelligence tool. I think some of them are excellent. What I look for in a tool like that, and I like the Hogan instrument panel is excellent also. The two things that I look for in choosing it, the leadership circle is another one that I think is really well done. So there's a bunch of really good ones, and I don't want to necessarily promote one over another. But I would say this, if you're choosing a tool, make sure, first of all, that it's less a personality assessment and more of a developmental assessment. And the way I would test that is ask whoever's giving you the assessment. If I take this assessment a year from now and I do a lot of work with a coach or with a training, will I be able to get a different score? In other words, can I shift? Can I move? If if that's part of it, then I think that's a a good sign. And then secondly, look for as many different categories as possible. I'm always wary when an assessment only has three or four boxes. We're much more complex than just three or four little spaces saying you're analytic or you're decisive or you're this or that. I like the EQI because it breaks emotional intelligence into 15 different dimensions. The Hogan, for example, has, I can't even remember how many dimensions. It has three or four different forms. It has lots of different dimensions. So look for tools. The leadership circle, I think, is something like 16 different different dimensions. That's important because granularity matters when you're looking at things like developmental skills and capacities and emotional skills. You want to really get to the very deepest level of data you can. So the more subsections, the better. might be a little bit intimidating sometimes when you have an assessment that's going to give you a 40-page report. (laughs) But if you're going to use assessments, use the ones that do that because it's a lot of really rich information. Well, and if you're going to get 40 pages, work with a coach certified to help you work through yeah. that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Whenever possible, it's good to have a trained professional to work with. You mentioned teal. For listeners who aren't familiar with that other than a color to paint a room, um, <laughs> can you tell people, and are you using assessments that help people measure specifically developmental maturity? No, not necessarily You're going to advocate for any one particular tool. If you look up developmental methodologies like vertical development, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different tools that are out there. A colleague of mine uses a vertical index tool that was put out by the Center for Creative Leadership that's really well designed. But I wouldn't necessarily want to promote any particular Mm -hmm. tool. I would just suggest to folks that they look up leadership developmental paths, psychologies. There's a lot of different resources available in that space. I want to build on the distinction that you're making. There's personality type, depending on your research, but most people would say that we don't change our type over time, but we mature through. So we've got type assessments, we've got competency and 360 assessments, and then we've got the purely developmental, like the vertical development. And so for listeners to understand the distinction when you're taking this on so that you 
either combine them to get a certain outcome, but at least know what you're looking for. So you don't take one test expecting to get feedback on something that is less supportive than you had hoped. I think that some of the well-known, more personality-oriented assessments have their place. For example, I use Myers-Briggs. It's probably the best known of all. And I use the big five. It's another one that everyone... But those, those are, to my mind, most helpful in team dynamics when you're looking to create a conversation around the different styles of people on a team and how to work effectively together, which is very different from when you're a leader looking to develop your own agility muscles. And you don't want to be putting yourself in a box. You want to find out your strengths, of which there are a number of different assessments that can tell you those, and then look to expand, look to broaden your capacities. That's really, the, to my mind, the key. And we absolutely agree on that. I'm just wanting to tease it out a little bit. So listeners who don't have a level of expertise in which assessment might be useful, that this gives a broader awareness of the options and where to start. Yeah. And I mean, the question to ask when you're going into a training or you're going into a coaching is, am I doing this to discover my personality or am I doing this to discover my strengths or my emotional intelligence capacities? You know, find out exactly what the goal is and they can all be helpful. But at the end of the day, you know, this gets back to the value of coaching. All of those tools, really, the best thing they do is tee up a conversation. They're not a be all and end all in themselves. Yeah. In fact, that's the first thing I say when giving feedback is these are numbers on a page that no matter how good or comprehensive the assessment is, can't fully describe a human being. It's just a a construct designed to measure an aspect. That's where the conversation starts. Right. And I would say the same thing about feedback. I think a lot of clients, a lot of leaders, young leaders, senior leaders are you know, in a situation now where they're being asked to do 360 feedback, they're being asked to report on their colleagues. At the end of the day, it's actually really good development that we are now in a more feedback-oriented culture. But I am always cautioning because that, again, is simply that it's just data. It's just perception. It's not who you are. So take it all with a grain of salt and use it if it's helpful. My rule of thumb with these kinds of 360 feedback tools and all the different, you know, there are a lot of different approaches. I typically tell my client, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to summarize everything into two or three key takeaways. Because what you really want is something you can use. I love Marshall Goldsmith's approach to what he calls feed forward, which is Give me feedback that'll help me tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's like, if you only can do one thing, what would it be? That's useful. Not just reading through lots of feedback and then trying to parse what's useful or what isn't. So all of those things, it's, it's great that we're moving more in a, into a developmental culture. I think that's a good thing, but let's not get you know, lost in the data. Well, and to pile on to that comment, often I'll see Bill could be more assertive. Bill is too assertive. You know, the completely conflicting comments. That's true. Or the same person because different constituents are looking for a different different behavior from Bill. 
and points out again the nuance of leading overall and that there is even with a good assessment, you're still going to see conflicts. Absolutely. There's a case study in my book with the head of emergency medicine where feedback from the patients was very positive, very directive, very authoritative, very competent, very fast, all the things you'd want to be from a director of emergency medicine during a pandemic. But from his team, never listens, talks too fast, (laughs) totally pushy, totally dominant, doesn't really take in our opinion, doesn't conduct a meeting that's inclusive steamrolls us. So it's like all of the things that the patients love about this doctor, the team found really difficult. Well, that just points to exactly what we're talking about, which is that when you're doing one thing well, that doesn't necessarily translate into every environment. So I did not coach this director of emergency medicine to become a softie with his patients or to take extra time and listen to them. I did, however, coach him to try practicing that with his team. It's a both and, not an either or. And that illustrates a point that I think is so important. Often we're not teaching them new behavior. We're just teaching people to pivot using something they're already good at. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I find sometimes that one of the most powerful transitional moments in a coaching dynamic is when I ask someone how they treat folks in their family or their children or their friends versus how they treat folks in their team or their clients or whatever, you know, if they're a doctor. Mm -hmm. And it's having them reflect on the distinctions and then recognize, oh, I do a really nice job with my 10-year-old. I can be playful. I can play. I can listen. I can spend time. And I'm like, oh, so you have all those skills. You just don't apply them (laughs) in a different environment. So you're absolutely right. A lot of the time, that flexibility muscle, that's really the core theme of my book, is available to us. It's becoming more aware of it, getting back to self-awareness, and then practicing, putting it into practice. A perfect example, and maybe a good one, so I know we're closing out here soon, but I had a couple of clients who were really good at teamwork in the real world. And then the pandemic hit and they came back to me, you know, a few months later and they were like, Jeff, what's going on? I can't get my team to turn on their videos. Some people don't show up. And I said, well, what are you doing that's different from what you did in the real world? And they said to me, oh, well, we would have casual conversation. We would meet over the coffee machine. We would chit-chat a little bit before. And now we don't have time for that because we're on virtual. So we just jump right in. I'm like, Mm. no, 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 no. Wait a minute. Aren't they still human beings, even though they're in little boxes? Oh, so you want me to spend a little time connecting, listening, talking, small talk. I'm like, yeah, can you do small talk on Zoom? And he's like, yeah, of course I could, but I just never thought about it. <laughs> like, okay, it's not rocket science, but it's important. So this really gets to, again, the importance of soft skills and the importance of what your research is revealing going forward. What else do you want to highlight that has come out of your research that you want to make sure that listeners walk away with? Probably the most important thing of all is that putting the emotional context of what's happening in your team at the forefront is no longer a nice to have. 
it's really a requirement because we are living through a very difficult, high anxiety, in some ways, very painful period in our history, whether it's in the US or Europe or anywhere else. And so any leader that wants to continue to have a high-performing team and be effective has to take into account the emotional state and the physical state of their staff. That was always true, right? You always had to care. It would always be better to care about your people. But in today's world, it needs to be primary. Because without it, people disappear. They don't show up. They won't perform. So that would be my big takeaway is really pay attention to what, how people are feeling, whether they're engaged, be willing to check in personally. That's the time we're living in. That's the leadership that's required. Thank you. And thank you for sharing that so thoughtfully. I, I read a statistic recently that 47% of people are now clinically dealing with anxiety and depression. There you go. So half of many teams will be struggling. Many of them will not share that with us, that as the leader and as the team member, it is now imperative. It's to your point, not optional. It's not the difference between good and great. It's the difference between ineffective and somewhere in the good to great spectrum. Yep. 100% agree. So Jeff, before we leave, and I know we only have a minute, uh, share with our listeners where they find your book and where they find you. They find me at the instituteofcoaching.org, where I'm one of the leaders and really great resources and a wonderful paper coming out soon about research that we've talked about in this call. And they can also find me at my website, jeffreyhullhull.com. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for joining. This is such an important conversation for all of our listeners, whether you're leading in a hospital or a business or a family or a community or nonprofit or government, all of our leaders need to rethink and develop skills where they are uncomfortable in this way of doing the things we had to do well before and in connecting more with people and being more caring in our work environments and in our home environments in many cases. So thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to innovate how you lead. Please share this information with others. And most of all, thank you for being effective as leaders. Join us again. 